addiction. I don't know about you, but when I hear the words addict or addiction, I think of movies I've seen, books I've read, or popular TV show dramas. Take Law and Order, for example. Our heroes and heroines often go around saving children from drug-addicted mothers or convicting addicts who commit murder for drugs. Or maybe we see people running meth labs out of grungy basements while plotting with or against the local mafia or vicious neighborhood gangs. Movies like Train Spotting or American Gangster demonstrate the very dregs of life on heroin, violence, abandonment, betrayal, death. Somehow, we humans can be morbidly drawn to these portrayals with a mix of revulsion, fascination, disbelief, and maybe relief that it's not us. These shows, I think, exploit our fascination with the darker sides of life and draw us, to draw us in and to keep us watching. And while it's true that addictions can take the devastating forms represented in the media, this emphasis on the extreme ends of the spectrum may distract us from the very ordinary ways that addictions can play a part in our lives. These representations can lead us to associate addictions with people who are not like us, and to assume addictions must be overwhelming before we should do something about them. And these dramatized depictions of addicted life do nothing to dispel stigma around addiction. And the vilification of addicts does not promote understanding or recovery. The media leaves the public sphere filled with an atmosphere of denial, silence, and judgment. How do we open up a space to acknowledge and begin to talk about the ordinary but no less damaging reality of addiction in our lives? What does addiction look like in your world and in mine? I recently read a sermon by Reverend Jennifer Rue called Filling in the Holes. None of us is perfectly complete, she writes. We all feel these holes in our being, holes in our soul. The dull ache of emptiness and longing is familiar to us as human beings, mortal and finite. At one time or another, we all feel the cold wind blow through these holes. We feel the dull ache of emptiness and the sorrow of what is missing. There are a thousand ways to fill these holes, she goes on. Some are benign, like the bag of M&Ms I ate while writing her sermon, she says. Some will deaden the pain and help us to forget. Some are dangerous and deadly to both ourselves and the people who love us the most. The dull ache of longing that Reverend Rue describes is, I think, unrelentingly common. And the relief-seeking behaviors to which it leaves us vulnerable can range, as she writes, from the relatively benign 
to the deadly. On the one hand, our seeking might manifest as occasional anger at those closest to us, the downing of a whole box of cookies, the purchasing of clothes or shoes or a vacation we don't really have the money to pay for. And then there are the consistent devolving addictions, whether to alcohol, food, sex, gambling, drugs, or something else. Serious addictions can lead to loss of job, family, or life. Why do the hardships of life lead to life-threatening addiction in one person and not in another? The reasons are many and varied, and theories exist that point to environment or genetics or both. But for those who, for whatever reason, are most susceptible, a tumble into difficulty can quickly spiral downward. Take Deborah's story from Deepak Chopra's book, Freedom from Addiction. Deborah was going through a rough year. Her mother had recently passed away after a long illness, and shortly thereafter, her husband announced that he was leaving her. Just as her life seemed to be falling apart, she was rear-ended while stopped at a traffic light resulting in a whiplash injury. Although her imaging studies showed only mild degenerative injuries, her neck pain was incapacitating. After trials of other medications, she was prescribed Vicodin by her family doctor. She was relieved by the pain-killing effect on her neck and on her emotional pain. Within a short time, she was taking more than 12 tablets a day and was requesting prescriptions from different doctors. She recognized she had a problem when she was spending more time thinking about how she could replenish her supply than about, about the neck pain that she was initially treating. What starts as a tiny thread can become a string and then a rope, and finally a chain around our necks. The temporary pleasure or relief offered by any addictive substance or action often leads to a desire for a repeat experience. But as the body adapts, more is required to sustain the sense of gratification or relief. The cycle leads this leads to a cycle of increased use and often increased preoccupation. Most insidious are the mental adaptations. If the addiction becomes incorporated into a person's identity, any threat to the addiction becomes a threat to that person's self. Once this happens, help of any form is perceived as unwelcome at best, dangerous at worst. Anyone who has ever attempted to cajole, advise, or otherwise persuade someone away from his or her chosen fix of the day, whether it be as benign as a cup of coffee or as serious as unprescribed Vicodin, knows it is neither easy 
nor very much fun. And if the addiction really begins to take over, the addict tends to retreat from exactly those friends, relatives, or acquaintances who may be attempting to help the person free themselves. Finally, the whole pattern is reinforced with the dynamics of silence and shame. The silence in our communities around this issue leaves many feeling like they are the only ones who struggle. The shame of not living up to perceived societal standards reinforces isolation and silence. The common understanding that addictions must be extreme before we can or need to take action can undermine our own self-preserving intuition to get some help. So we don't reach out. And handling addictions alone is prone to failure. The failure can lead to more shame and less willingness to break the silence. It's a vicious circle and can leave many feeling trapped. However, just as addiction can start with one encounter and grow to unwieldy proportions, so too recovery can start small and flourish over time. It may start as the tiniest impulse a calling of the heart or soul that says, wait a minute, this isn't quite right. Something's off. Our reaction to the voice might be initially stifling. I'm not an addict, we say to ourselves. I'm fine. I just worry sometimes about how much I drink or eat or smoke or work. And maybe there isn't really a problem. Or maybe we can take actions that would, in the long run, improve our lives. If we talk to someone, we have the chance to hear ourselves, hear someone else, and begin to discern what makes sense for us. That can lead to further conversations, to steps taken toward health, and life eventually gets better. But depending on the strength of the addiction, it may not be easy. It can be a long and challenging road. For serious physical addictions, the first few days, weeks, or months can be particularly hard. When our minds want to go in one direction and our bodies in another, attention is generated that can feel almost unbearable. It's detox. It's that place where we can get so distracted by the pull of the addiction that we cannot concentrate, cannot sit still. We see little cigarettes or pills or candy bars in our heads and find it is all we can do to be civil to anyone else, let alone to ourselves. So how do people do it? 12-step programs are billed as one of the most reliable ways to reach lasting recovery. Many people testify to their transformational power. I have heard this framework referred to as a brilliant application of psychiatric principles created nonetheless by people with no background in psychiatry. 
The steps seem to work on core principles in the human psyche that transcends any particular discipline. And I got a a potent sense of the power of the steps when I worked in an addictions recovery facility over the summer last year as part of my student chaplaincy requirement for seminary. I heard one of the standard recommendations is 90 meetings in 90 days. The fact is, recovery can be that hard. And the fact is, there is that much support available. There are many, many meetings all over the greater Boston area, and there are many, many people who go. Still, for some, the 12 steps can be a tough sell. The philosophy is based on the idea of surrender to a power outside of you which is greater than yourself. While in some ways this principle of yielding is consistent with Buddhist and other spiritual principles, I know that some struggle with the God language. Still, for those who stay with it and work out a way to fold the program into their theology, it can work. I have been told one's higher power can consist of the caring of the people who attend 12-step meetings, or your sense of God, or a particularly interesting concept one person told me about over the summer is you can designate a city bus. Whatever your relationship with the concepts of God, I think a key service that AA and other 12-step groups provide for all of us is a testimony to what is possible. It's possible to live a happy, healthy life even after some of the most destructive dances with addiction. I've heard it referred to as hitting bottom, when life falls apart so completely you have nowhere left to go. But diseases go into remission. Recovery is a choice that can be made. Life grows back. It is possible to create space for hope. And as I understand from recovered and recovering addicts I have talked to, personal growth inside the program can reach new heights beyond what a person might have thought possible before they began their healing journeys. Which brings me to the concept of the larger spiritual context for addiction recovery. I wonder whether addiction's recovery is actually a microcosm of a much broader journey on which we are all, in our unique and individual ways, embarking. In her book, Big Questions, Worthy Dreams, Sharon DeLaz Parks proposes that the path to our most authentic selves our fullest spirituality requires a journey through shipwreck, gladness, and amazement. While shipwreck may sound rather extreme, Parks goes on to explain. That metaphorical shipwreck can occur, she says, with the loss of a relationship, collapse of a career venture, or physical illness, Sometimes we simply encounter someone or something that fundamentally calls into question how we perceive the world. Something that calls into question what we were taught or heard or had assumed. 
An experience like this can rip into the fabric of life, she says, or slowly but just as surely unravel the meanings that have served as the home of the soul. So far, to me, this sounds a lot like what many addicts go through on their journey, whether it's the collapse of hitting bottom or a fundamental shift in perspective that leads to those first difficult steps of recovery. What next? Addicts go through a mental and emotional and physical detox. Shipwreck, Parks writes, induces a mental, emotional, and physical realignment. And as Parks writes, it is hard. When people undergo the breakup or unraveling of what has held their world together, inevitably, there is some degree of suffering. She tells the story of a freshman in college whose dream was to become a basketball star. He was not very tall, and he had come from a small-town high school. The second week of the season, he was cut from the team. He remembers going to the showers and sobbing for two hours. He suffered from a collapse of meaning, his sense of self, world, and God. To undergo shipwreck is to be threatened in a total and primary way. What once promised trustworthiness disappears. But if we wash up on a new shore, perceiving more adequately how life really is, there is gladness, Parks assures us, and a gladness that pervades one's whole being. There is a new sense of vitality, whether it be quiet or exuberant. Whilst we must mourn what we have lost, while there may have been a true and permanent diminishment, we find life continues to unfold with meaning, with connections of significance and delight. And there is a personal transformation, a new knowing and a new capacity to act. We will no longer settle for a less than adequate truth. More generally, this metaphor of shipwreck gladness and amazement can shake us loose from our focus on little loves and put us in touch with the mystery of the wider force field in our lives. It's almost as if when our attention is freed from a particular focus in our worlds, through shipwreck or through renunciation of an addiction, we can be opened. We have let something go, and in our release, we may find elusive mystery. Our task is to keep swimming. Through the detox, through the suffering, to a new and perhaps unexpected shore of gladness and amazement. Might the winds of mystery begin to dance through the holes in our hearts? Might the dull ache begin to lighten or transform? Our journeys will show us. I'd like to end the sermon today with a short prayer. 
And please let us gather our hearts and minds. Dear, loving spirit of life and unfolding honesty, may we have the determination to prevail when we need to, the courage to abide by our bandaged wounds, the willingness to see just where it is that the light comes in. If we are struggling, may we find someone to talk to. May we trust the forces that heal us and in our faith, find that the pulls and forces that hold us back lessen and loosen, that the heaviness that weighs us down lightens. May we find ourselves step by courageously faithful step becoming ever more free. Amen.